Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Good morning. And by good morning, I mean, what's up? at whatever time you're watching or listening to this. Uh, welcome to Catholics with Bibles. As always, I'm your host, Chase Krause, and super stoked to be here with you today um, as we continue to dive into this text of Ephesians. So we are once again continuing our journey along man and woman. He created them, uh, Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And uh, we have uh, maybe like just a few more episodes left of Theology of the Body, which is really hard for me to say because it means that, like, once again, we just can't get into every single audience. Um, but we're going to get through what we can before moving on uh, into our next segment of uh, the, the Catholics with Bibles show this summer. Um, and so wherever you're at, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for, for tuning in always. Uh, I was looking at the numbers the other day because it's like on the podcast website or whatever that we publish. You know, we can see how many downloads we have and all these things. Um, and it's just kind of wild. Um, how, how well received uh, this podcast has been. We began this podcast last March-ish, end of March, beginning of April, as a response to COVID, as a response to the lockdown. Uh, we wanted to stay connected with our parishioners here, but also just people all over the country and the world as a means to uh, produce solid Orthodox Catholic content um, through our YouTube channel, through our podcast, through everything. And we didn't really know where this was going to go. We didn't know if this was going to be something like we were going to start and just kind of like do until the pandemic was over. Um, and uh, we just kind of, we're just, we're just go for it. You know, we're, we're along for the ride and it's just been really, really well received. And um, obviously we're still, we're still doing it over a year later um, with uh, literally thousands of, of downloads, thousands of views, uh, thousands of you guys uh, listening to this podcast. And I, so I just want to say thank you. It's very humbling, uh, and it's also, I, I take it as a sign that uh, we're doing the Lord's work because uh, apparently it's well-received. So I just want to say thank you so much for everybody who listens to this, and also thank you for sharing. Uh, tons of you guys are sharing uh, your content with your friends, your family, and that just means a whole, whole bunch to me. So I just want to thank you again so much uh, for being here with us as we continue our journey. And, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is I think it's also a sign that Catholics and maybe Christians, if you're not Catholic, listen to this, are are craving, you know, solid content. So far as like, you know, one of the things that I don't do a lot on this show is uh, we don't really have any fluff, right? It's kind of the beauty of having a 30 minute podcast um, is we don't, I don't just waste time chatting on my podcast. Not that podcasts that like chat and stuff, like it's not a waste of time. I think it's, I think it's a cool thing that a lot of podcasters do. Uh, with interviews and stuff like that. But, you know, the point of this podcast is to kind of just get into the nitty gritty of content, right? To to pursue Christ through study. And so uh, using Ratzinger's method C along the way. And so I hope that's you. I hope you're listening to this because you want to grow in your relationship with Christ uh, through intellectual formation and, and hopefully spiritual formation as well. Um, and so with that being said, as always on this show, we are going to start with our Greek word of the day. So our Greek word of the day today is mysterion. So mysterion is the Greek uh, for mystery. Um, and so this is a really fascinating word that we're going to dive into here in a little bit. But just as a surface kind of definition, this is not 
like Scooby-Doo mystery, right? <laughs> this isn't like a, I don't know something and so I'm trying to solve it, right? That's not what mysterion really implied in, in, in Greek. Um, it, it's rather, it's, um, it's something powerfully mysterious. So it's something that is, is hidden, yet something that it's not just like a puzzle to be solved, right? We're going to get into that a little bit later as we can journey through Ephesians. So last week, we really honed in on Ephesians uh, 21 through 24, um, talking about wives submitting to your husbands and, and, and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and what that meant, this you know mutual submission. We dove into the sacramentality of marriage a little bit, just kind of a surface level. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into that today. Um, and so today we're going to continue the journey with Pope St. John Paul II in Ephesians uh, 5, 25 uh, through 33, which is the end of the chapter. And this is really getting into the nuts and bolts of, you know, the, once again, diving more into this analogy of husband and wife, and, but also more specifically of, of head and body. Um, and also this idea that Pope St. John Paul II has of bisubjectivity, Right. Uh, leading to uni subjectivity, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But we're first just going to start by reading the, the verses here from Ephesians 5. So we read this and starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands show love to their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one even, sorry, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so we have this idea of bi-subjectivity in this passage. The Pope St. John II says, what is this bi-subjectivity? Namely, two subjects, right? Well, within the context, the obvious two subjects initially is, is husband and wife, right? But also Christ and church. This is the analogy of head and body, right? So this analogy of, of Christ being the head of the church, the body, it's really, it's, it's important for us to, to look, look to this a little bit in more detail because, you know, in one sense, we say that Christ is the head of the church, right? As husband's head of the, head of the wife. Well, what does that mean? Well, the head is what leads, but also the head is the, we'll say, uh, primary piece of the body, right? You can lose your arm and still be a human being, still be fully, fully alive. You can lose your leg. Um, you can, you know, not have any legs. Uh, you can be paralyzed. But as long as your head is still intact and attached to your torso, you are still a, a human person, right? You're not just a corpse lying on the ground. Um, and so this implies that namely the head is the main component or like has primacy um, and does everything though for the sake of the body, right? 
And so in this sense, the head isn't like some superior thing that does whatever it wants and says, screw you, body, I'm going to do whatever I want. No, that's foolish, right? The head in this analogy does everything for the sake of the body, right? So while it has the primacy of place, its role is to serve the body and to love the body, right? And so in this way, this analogy, analogous way, you know, husbands and wives, the husband is the, the head of the wife. What does that mean? In one sense, it, the husband has primacy of place, but only for the sake of the body, right? So it, it's, it's as if the body is there to be led and loved by the head, right? And the head's primary responsibility, primary role is to do everything for the sake of the body, for the health of the body, right? So we talked about this last week, right? So this mutual submission of, of wives to husband isn't some draconian arbitrary thing that, you know, God commands Christians to do because wives have to submit to their husbands and be a slave to their husbands. No. And any view of man and woman marriage of that view, you know, which is definitely not a Catholic view, it is, I would even say evil, right? It, there are some like Protestant uh, faiths that, not all of them, I'm not saying all of them, but there are some who truly treat the wives as like a servant of the husband, like in a quite literal way. And I think that is so disordered, right? I think that's so wrong because it's totally misleading this passage and it's totally mis misreading Christ's relationship with the church, right? We are God's servants in one, in one respect, right? In the sense that we are, are, we exist in order to know, love, and serve him and to glorify him in all things. But Christ says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. And Christ proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So he gave himself completely for us on the cross, right? So JP2 says this, and this is kind of a longer passage, but it, it, I just couldn't not read it because it's so good because he's talking about this, the love of the husband and the wife, the love of Christ. And so this, once again, longer passage, bear with me, but he's talking about the unity of love, right? This submission, this, this mutual submission and this unity, this, this bi-subjectivity of church and Christ and husband and wife, they, they become one. But how do they become one? They become one through love, right? And so this is what uh, JP2 says. He, in quoting Ephesians 5, he says, quote, the one who loves his wife loves himself, quoting St. Paul. This is JP2. This sentence confirms that character of unity even more. In some sense, love makes the eye of another person one's own eye. The wife's eye, I would say, becomes through love the husband's eye. The body is the expression of this eye and the foundation of its identity. The union of husband and wife and love expresses itself also through the body. It expresses itself in the reciprocal relationship. Although the author of Ephesians indicates it above all from the husband's side, this is a result of the structure of the image as a whole, the, the image of head and body. Although the spouses should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, nevertheless, in what follows, the husband is above all the one who loves. And the wife, by contrast, is the one who is loved. One might even venture to the idea that the wife's submission to the husband, understood in the context of the whole of Ephesians, 
means above all the experiencing of love. This is all the more so because this submission refers to the image of the submission of the church to Christ, which certainly consists in experiencing his love. The church as bride, being the object of the redemptive love of Christ, the bridegroom, becomes his body. The wife, being the object of spousal love of her husband, becomes one flesh with him, in some sense his own flesh. The author repeats this idea once more in the last sentence of the passage we are analyzing. Therefore also, therefore also you, each one on his part, should love his wife as himself. So, I, I, just think, I just think it's so beautiful. He says, you know, going back to the quote, the one who loves the wife, by contrast, is the one who is loved, right? The husband, you're the, you're the head, you're the initiator. You are the one who gives love first. You, you initiate the love. You are the lover, right? The one who loves. And the wife is the beloved. The wife is the one who is loved, so I think that, I mean, if you're, if you're married or engaged, um, or even if you're not, whatever, listening to this podcast, you have to really think of your relationship with your spouse, right? Husbands, are you the one who loves? Are you the one who initiates love? Right. This goes to the marital act in one sense that, that men should uh, initiate uh, the marital act in a very obvious way. Um, but also like men should initiate all, all forms of love, especially agape love, the self-giving love, self-sacrificing love. Are you, husbands, are you the first one to die to yourself to help your spouse in some way? Are you the first one to die to yourself to, to do the dishes or wrangle the kids, even though you're exhausted in order to love your spouse? Are you the first one to show your spouse that you love her. And this is part of the reason why, you know, men traditionally are the ones who, you know, ask women to go on dates and ask women to uh, marry them. You know, I'm not saying it has to be that way, but in, in one sense, the reason, the beautiful reason is because you're the one that initiates, you're living out your vocation, your hopefully future vocation as head of, head of the, the body, and you also are the one that will take the hit, Right? You will take the rejection. You will take the pain in order to not have to your wife to go through any kind of pain or discomfort, right? So, and wives, do you allow yourself to be loved, right? Do you allow yourself to be a beloved? You know, are you, are you searching always for love? You know, one of the things that I think is really sad in relationship is when, when the, the spouse's motivation, the wife's motivation to do things for the other spouse is because they're, they're searching for love. You know, I, you see this all the time in college campuses and high school kids where the, where girls, they throw themselves at guys because they're seeking to be loved. And they're thinking, if I just throw myself at him, then, and he responds, he must love me. He must, you know, there, there's a, and JP2 talks, talks about this in love and responsibility. Um, you know, they throw themselves because they're, they're searching. They, they desire to be the beloved that they initiate, right? They throw themselves at these guys. Rather, you know, do you, do you wait? Do you, do you have a posture of receptivity? And I'm not saying that like women can't ever like surprise their husbands with things and do things. That's not what I'm saying, right? 
But at the same time, I think the primary disposition of the relationship is husbands being the initiator of love and the wives being able to receive the love and then give it back, right? It's a co-receptivity, right? It's a beautiful engagement of of self-sacrifice on part of both spouses, right? But what JP2 is talking about is, is primarily the husband is the one who loves and the wife is the one who is loved and then and reciprocates that in, in return. The, and like what he says, he says, means above all the experiencing of love. So the wife's vocation is to experience the love of the spouse. And this is a mystery, right? And this is what he goes on to say, mysterion. So he says it here in verse 32, right after he quotes Genesis, right? So Genesis uh, 2.24, which we talked about, you know, a month or so ago, however long ago, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery, mysterion is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this mystery, mysterion is profound. What is it? What's the mystery? Well, the sacramentality of marriage is that we live out what is truly happening between Christ and the church. Christ is fully giving himself to the church. And us as the mystical body of Christ, the church, right? Our reality, our vocation is to experience the love of Christ, right? To, to enjoy that love, to live in that love. And then to reciprocate that love to him in return by loving everyone we, we meet, by living out our vocation, right? And so this, this mystery is profound. This mysterion is profound. And so this, this word mysterion, it's, it's important for us to look at it real, real quick. Like I said earlier, it's not a mystery to be solved. It's not a riddle, right? Rather, this, this word in Greek, mysterion, later was translated as Latin as sacramentum, right? The sacrament. Remember that the church's first language isn't Latin. It was Greek. And so uh, if you are one of my um, rad trad brothers and sisters out there, I hope you know this, but I've heard some well-intentioned rad trads being like, Latin is the language of the church. It's the first language of the church. And me as a biblical scholar and Catholic look at them and I say, dude, the first language of the church was Greek. Literally, the Bible is written in Greek. Everyone spoke Greek. I love Latin, not bashing Latin. I love Latin mass. I do. But just know, Latin was not the first language of the church. Okay, side tangent. Um, but this mysterion is later a sacramentum. It's mysterion. It, it, it's something deeper. And I think the word sacramentum helps us to understand this. this the word sacramentum was originally used um, when it's a, the soldiers and Caesar's army the sacramentum was the oath that would that they would swear. And this oath had an implication of your life being changed, right? So once you swear allegiance to Caesar and your soldier and his army, you are no longer a normal citizen. You have been changed. And so the church later adopts this language of sacramentum. And, you know, it took centuries for the church, you know, dogma and theology to kind of develop, right, to kind of get to the point of seven sacraments, and we know that a sacrament makes visible and invisible efficaciously, right? You, you imparts grace for what it is, ex opere operato. And so this mystery is profound. What's the mystery, right? What's, the, what's this mystery here? What reality is being changed? 
Well, he says this right after he quotes Genesis. And, and Pope St. John Paul II says, you know, he's, he's quoting Genesis to remind us that marriage has been around from the beginning. Marriage, and we're talking about this a little bit later on, being this primordial sacrament, this, this first sacrament. What's God been trying to show us throughout salvation history? Well, if you just look at the whole Bible, what are the bookends? Well, man shall leave his father and mother and, be cl and cling to his spouse, Genesis 2, right? Well, Revelations, what's the book of Revelation about? It's about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's the mystery that God is slowly revealing over the course of salvation history, culminating in Christ? And one day at the end of time, when we fully encounter the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's that God desires us to be perfectly united to us, right? And that is a great mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. Christ being totally united to Christ and the church and marriage just being a, a, an analogous way to, to, to see that, right? Remember, sacrament makes visible the invisible reality, but there are no sacraments in heaven because we'll be totally united to Christ. So in marriage, we are showing visibly through our union as spouses in the marital act and in the, the joining of our lives as one. The bi-subjectivity becomes unisubjectivity, one subject. In one sense, my eye becomes my spouse's eye and her eye becomes my eye and we become one flesh. And this represents and this shows forth to the world Christ's union with his church. Christ's union with his church. So, the sacraments, right, sacramentum, they cause the mystery to be present now, efficaciously. What's the mystery of our union with Christ, our union with God for all eternity, which was slowly revealed throughout salvation history, right? So this text, I mean, we, we're just scratching the surface, really. But husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this is in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, namely baptism, right? Baptism is the beginning of our salvation journey. But once again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, that he might sanctify her, that as, as husbands, we may lead our spouses to holiness, first and foremost. And then look at, look at this next verse here, a few verses down. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. How does Christ nourish the church? Through the Eucharist. Right? Through, his, through his very self. Right? How, how are husbands supposed to nourish their wives? With their very selves, with, their, with our lives. Your presence should be refreshing to your spouse. It should bring life to your spouse. It should bring joy to your spouse. And I'm not saying this is going to be like the easiest thing in the world every single day. But if our vocation as married people is supposed to show forth and bring visible Christ's relationship with his church, the, the bar is impossibly high. Matthew 5, 46, right? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, you're saying, you, you read that passage like, how is that possible? It's not. But through Christ, through the grace of Jesus Christ, 
and through the efficaciousness of the sacraments. The mystery of our union with Christ, the salvation history, breaks into our world. Right? The eschatological marriage feast, the eschatological reality is in breaking now. We live in the end times. We live in this reality of Christ in union with the church. So husbands, we must nourish our wives. We must nourish our families in a literal way, like through providing for them, but also through our lives, through our presence, through our vocation. Right? There's one more quote. I just wanted to finish off here. Pope St. John Paul II says this. One can say that this sacramentality of the church is constituted by all of the sacraments through which she fulfills her sanctifying mission. One can say in addition that the sacramentality of the church is the source of the sacraments, and in particular, baptism in the Eucharist, as is clear in Ephesians 5. One must say, finally, that the sacramentality of the church remains in a particular relationship with marriage, the most ancient sacrament. Why is it the most ancient sacrament? Because from the beginning of time, God was trying to show humanity its destiny, namely its perfect union with him forever in heaven. So y'all, we got a few more audiences to go. We actually only have about 15 audiences left before we get into uh, the unrevealed, uh, or sorry, the, the, uh, the audiences over the Song of Songs, which JP2 never gave, um, fully at least, uh, he, he wrote them down and it's in the text and he didn't necessarily give them all, um, which is a very interesting part. So we're going to have next week, we're going to start diving into the Song of Songs. And you might be thinking to yourself, like if you've read Men When We Created Them, like Chase, you didn't finish the section on, on marriage and the sacramentality of marriage and Ephesians. And I say to you, I, I know. Um, <laughs> but we are going to dive into the Song of Songs starting next week. Um, and uh, just to continue to wrap up our study of man and woman, he created them. So thank you so much for joining me on Catholics with Bibles. As always, y'all, God bless. All right, y'all, thank you so much again for joining me. As always, I'll ask that you share the podcast with your friends, with your family. Give us a review on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us on the interwebs better. And as always, y'all, thank you so much for joining me with this week on Catholics with Bibles. We will see you next time. Take it easy.